Father, let our time together be a holy time. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I have chosen Joshua 11. I'm following the series and Joshua 11 is for tonight. And I've chosen the verses 1 to 7 and verse 23. And it's with all those nice names in it, which I have very practiced at home, but let's see. When King Jabin of Hazer heard of this, he sent to King Jobab of Maiden, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Achshaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country and in the Arabah south of Kinerot, and in the lowland, and in Naphoth-dor, and the on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Parisites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mitzpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great army, in number like the sand on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and camped together at the waters of Merom to fight with Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will hand over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua came suddenly upon them with all his fighting force by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. Verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. This is the word of the Lord. As we read the book of Joshua, it, leaks, it almost reads like an ancient Hebrew history textbook. Half of the book tells us about the conquest of the land itself. And then in the final chapters, we will see that later, it tells us the story of how the land was allotted. We have seen before, before Joshua in, in Moses, that Moses led the people out of Egypt. And Joshua leads them into the domination of Canaan. But for both, it was not an easy quest. They struggled along the way, mainly because they suffered from the disobedience of their people. They just could have gone straight through. It would have been a couple of weeks of walk, but instead it took them 40 years. I think disobedience is a result of a lack of trust. And we see when we read in Joshua that Joshua had a very deep, tr deep trust in God. Whatever situation he was at, with whatever situation he was dealing with, he trusted God fully. We can read in verse 6 that the Lord speaks to Joshua. 
Do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow, I will then hand over to you all of them. And Joshua, Joshua heard it and believed it. In other words, he trusted God that he will do so. It sounds easy in a way, right? If we just would hear God like this, yeah, sure, I would trust him too. We can read chapter 10 and 11 in about 20 minutes. And maybe people that are able to cross-read in less. But Joshua didn't have to fight in like, it was not a 20-minute fight. Those battles didn't take place that shortly. Nor was it a swift military campaign. The conquest of Canaan probably took about seven years. Seven years where Joshua had to hold on on what the God had said through the days in the wilderness until this day they started the conquest. And again, it was not quick and an easy victory. Joshua had to trust God on the long haul. And this appears to be one of the patterns of God when he works with his people. And I think at the same time, as trusting is a long process, here lies a problem. God calls us to trust on a long period of time. It's not trust me today and the job will be done tomorrow. Josephus is a Jewish historian and he's writing about this conquest of Canaan about a couple hundred years later. And he writes that Joshua most likely was confronted, and now listen to those numbers, with about 300,000 foot soldiers, 100,000 cavalry, and 20,000 chariots. That's a lot of people. It's hard to say if those numbers are really correct, but what we definitely do know is it's been a lot of people because we see in verse 4 it says a huge army as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And when the Bible uses that phrase as numerous as the sand, it means it's a lot. It's a number you hardly can count when you look at it. Abraham's descendants was supposed to be as much as the stars. And if you look at the stars in the sky, you cannot count them. If you can, give me a call tomorrow. I want to hear that. So Joshua already has been on the battle, battlefield for several years. And it seems like nothing could take away his trust in God. Even those huge numbers of the army, he still trusted God. And it was not just that there was a huge number of soldiers facing his, his soldiers. There were also the Anakims we can read. And that spelled pure terror to the Israelites. The Anakim, or in some of the other translations, it says the Anakites, were a race of giant, warlike people. They must have been really big, big guys. They occupied the land southern is from southern Israel near Hebron. And maybe you remember when those 12 spies went out to see and check out the country, if they could take it. 
they came back and they were frightened. They said, "This is we cannot do this. They are giants. They are. They are so. We have never seen so big people, and, and we look like mere grasshoppers in their sight." You know what they did? They did not take God up on His promise. They did not enter the promised land. There were only two people, and it was Joshua and Caleb. But with all the other people, fear took place, and they refused to trust God's promises. And as a result, we know they had to wander for another 38 years in the wilderness. Only Joshua and Caleb came back and said, hey, we can do it. Because they still trusted in God and that they they could do this job with the help of God. So now, 40 years later, Joshua sees those giants again. He's meeting them again. And this time, he gets them trampled to the ground. It says he got almost everybody killed. There were just some left here and there. And it was possible because he trusted in God. He was able to deal with those giants because he was trusting God. When we read Joshua, we can see it's all about trust. God keeps telling him, trust me, do not be afraid, don't fear. God is always at work. Even when many of our days and lives are filled with just taking a shower, brushing our teeth, comb the hair, taking out the garbage, going to work, school or university. It's just the daily routines and God is there and he does his miracles in those daily routines. But those daily routine days, there's nothing extraordinary seems to happen. And that could be the start of a bigger problem to come. And we can read something about this when just ordinary times are occurring. Exodus 24 tells us about Moses when he went up to the mountains receiving God's laws. The people down were getting anxious. They were thinking Moses had died or left them. And then later in chapter 32, we can read that they approached Aaron and asked him, wouldn't you make us a golden idol? And the golden calf was done. The people offered sacrifices. They went back to their pagan rituals. All the things they knew from back in Egypt, they took it back into their lives. After they have experienced all those miracles, 40 days of a routine and imagination, because they were just imagining Moses had left them, led them to leave their God and worship an idol. Doubt has settled in, and the, their trust in God has vanished. It was just gone, for whatever reason. It was in this ordinary time, in this routine, and the imagination they had that something bad has happened to Moses. You know, trust is built in 
very small moments. Trust is built in those ordinary times. We build trust in our routines. And Joshua has built his relationship, his trust with God very early. When you go and read Exodus, you can read that Joshua was the assistant of Moses. Most of the times, or maybe most of the people think that only Moses saw God face to face. But it was not just Moses. Joshua was with him. When Moses went up to the mountain those 40 days, it's in the Bible, it, it says Joshua went with him. It seems like that Joshua was shadowing him, whatever Moses did. Joshua was with him. So Joshua somehow must have seen the face of God or at least been in those divine moments and must have gotten something of this. Encounters. And have you ever realized that Moses initialized the meetings with God? It was not that God initialized the meetings with God. He did too, but also Moses initialized the meetings with God. And we can read this in Exodus 33. It says that God, that Moses used to take the tent outside the camp. He, he would pitch it up there and he would go there and he would call it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose up and every man stood at this tent door and looked after Moses until he had gone into the tent. And then it says that when Moses came or entered the tent, God came too and he met with him. It doesn't say that God told Moses, okay, come out to the tent, I want to meet you. It was always Moses who initialized it who went out and said, it's time to meet God. Let us meet and talk. And when you read Exodus 33, you can read in verse 11, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tent. That is very interesting. That is the same Joshua we meet later in Joshua 1 and in Joshua 11 that has that really deep trust in God in those times of battle. But he, I believe, I deeply believe, he has established that trust in the daily routines on days when he felt good, when everything was just plainly normal. He took his showers. Well, maybe he didn't take showers, but he was washing his face. I do not know if people back then brushed their teeth, but he somehow combed his hair. He got dressed. Just the daily, ordinary things. He surely had to take care of the garbage too. So when are you initializing meetings with God? Is it more in times of trouble? that you turn to God? Or is it also during your ordinary times, in your daily routines? When things seem hopeless, and I think we all have been at th those points, someone said it's the time for faith. 
faith and trust go together. And as I said before, trust is built in those small moments. We build up our trust in ordinary times. So we have faith to build on when we are faced with our giants. I think we all know those giants and terror in our lives. Our battlefield may be different than the one from Joshua, but they are battlefields nevertheless. We all face giants in our life. We may want to run away, maybe in fear, or we become emotionally or spiritually paralyzed. We battle different giants. Could be giants of fear, unforgiveness, and we shouldn't underestimate the unforgiveness, loneliness, insecurity. Or maybe you want to say it differently. Maybe we want to say, no, my giant is suffering from betrayal of a close friend. I lost the ability to trust people again, or maybe trust that person. Maybe your child is that you're living from paycheck to paycheck and you hardly know how to make ends meet. Maybe you suffer from unemployment and unemployment is your child. Maybe your child is the loss of health. Another child could be addiction or maybe a friend that is addicted. And I think this list could go on and you put in what, what your giant is. But I'm sure there are a lot of giants out there. So how are you dealing with your giants? Is fear and desperation creeping in? Or hopelessness that at the end paralyzes you in whatever you want to do? Emotionally, physically, spiritually. In the book of Joshua, God says on several occasions, don't fear, don't be afraid, do not be discouraged. So reading this, a conclusion would be that I say, there shouldn't be hopeless situations for one who trusts in God. I know that sounds very strong and maybe some of you say, yeah, that's easier said than done. But let me ask you one thing. Isn't the following right that most of us turn to God only when we think the situation is hopeless? As long as we can find a solution to our problem, something we, we are able to pin our hope on, rather than trusting God, and only until we have used up all our options and not a single piece of hope is left, then, as a last resort, we may turn to God and we want him to change our situation immediately. And we are maybe surprised if we do not hear an answer because our faith 
builds on the trust we have with God, and that trust again is built in ordinary times. So what do we learn out of Joshua? And there should be a slide coming. There is an acronym I made out. The, the title was Trust and Finish the Job. The conclusion of Joshua for me is trust. No, no matter what situation you are facing, how easy or how difficult it is, let's look at the time. Take a time out from your battlefield. Take a time out from your giants, your terror. Before you are able to win the battle, you need instructions from above. Remember Joshua. He never rushed into the battle. He always first turned to God. And I would call it he entered the courtroom of heaven because there was a case against him. There were soldiers coming, kings, that had a case against him. And cases are only one in a courtroom. So he entered the courtroom of heaven. The place of the initial conflict is in a courtroom, and it's not on a battlefield. Prayer is not done on a battlefield. You will act very bad if you only pray on your battlefield. And then I was cheating a little bit. R says, rogate. So for those that speak Latin, rogate means pray. And there is, I think it's the fifth Sunday in the year that's called rogate, and it comes from the tradition, ask, and it will be given unto you. When you pray, you are entering the courtroom of heaven. You present your case to God. So we first need to win our verdicts before going out to win on the battlefield. And as I said, most of the times we think when we pray, we are on a battlefield and we rush into a conflict without really securing a verdict from heaven. And then we are surprised when the mess we are in is worsening. So make sure you, you go, you pray, you enter the courtroom, you receive a verdict. And then we go to you, because once you receive the verdict, you need to understand it. You need to understand what God is saying. So once you have entered the courtroom and you have the need to understand what is said, and here your listening skills are asked for. Jesus says to John, chapter 5, the verse 19, and Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever he does, that the Son does likewise. Someone once said, we must be able to pray within the will of God. We can find the needle in the haystack when heaven is open and revelation is flowing. And I think that might be one of the most critical steps here to effective prayer is understanding the will of God and praying in agreement with that will. And then comes S. Submit to his will. So you have received the verdict, you have understood it, 
you know what God wants you to do, and now it's all about submitting to that will. Once you understand it, go out. That might mean go back onto the battlefield and act accordingly. And last but not least, thank God, that's another T from trust. Thank God in advance for what he will do. You might not see the turnout on the next day, maybe not the next minute, but the come out with, it will come out. And thank God for whatever he will do because he's an active God and he does work. Please pray with me. Father, I ask that you will teach us and help us to trust you only, to come to you before we enter a battlefield, and that we will be able to understand what you are saying, that we will see the heaven open and receive the revelation from you straight. Pray this in the holy name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.